Hey dog people of the internet, welcome to Cog Dog Radio, a podcast all about dog sports, behavior, and training. I'm your host, Sarah Stremming of the Cognitive Canine, and I can't wait to share my behavior cases, training revelations, and general geekery with you. Let's get started. Okay, y'all, we got to talk about something. We got to talk about humans and their own personal self-regulation and or impulse control. What I, I don't think it's impulse control. I think it's self-regulation, but whatever. Call it what you want. Y'all got to control yourselves. And what am I talking about? I am talking about the fact that when you are training dog sports in particular, this is going to be a sporty episode for sure. You have to make choices that serve your future self, your future team, rather than your today self and your today team. Let me give you an example. If I throw a dumbbell for Felix and he's in a sit-stay at my side and his little butt comes off the ground and he starts to hover, if I, in that moment, choose to send him for that dumbbell... I am serving my in-the-moment self because it's very fun for me. He runs super fast. He grabs it. He comes in the front. He's, he's just such a fun dog to train. And I am not serving the future of my team if I do that. It isn't about his self-regulation. He starts to hover off the ground. That's on me to train him better and actually... It's on me to handle the antecedents better because that's what that's about for him. But that's probably a different episode. But what it matters most in that moment is that I do not send him for that dumbbell. And it's very tempting to ask him to sit again and then maybe even ask him to lie down and then send him for the dumbbell. And I am guilty of that. But that doesn't serve us either because the mistake already occurred. And so anything that happens after that is reinforcing that mistake. If I eventually let him have the thing that he was anticipating when he kind of committed the error. So if your dog shows anticipatory behaviors that are bad for you as a team going forward, and you allow them to access the thing that they are anticipating, you are digging the grave of your performance team. You are wrecking it for yourself. The most common place that I see this in my um, students who do dog agility is the start line. So start lines start to get really pushy as soon as the dog starts to anticipate running the course, doing the obstacles, or seeking the reward. And so depending on the dog, they might not start to break start lines until you start competing. I'm going to argue most of them showed you anticipatory behaviors that you reinforced if they do start to break their start line in competition, but they may not do this blatant, you know, run past you that you notice as a big glaring red flag once you're competing in training. They may have just their butt hovered, like I mentioned with Felix, or maybe they walked forward and you didn't realize they did, or maybe they released right before you released them, but you didn't know that because you didn't make sure before you released so I'm going to repeat a part of this again. If they are committing errors that are errors of anticipation and you reinforce those errors of anticipation with the thing they were anticipating, you will have a very hard time getting away from that. So this does come back to your self-control. 
it does not come back to their self-control as much. And everybody wants it to. Everybody says, oh, my dog needs better impulse control. He's breaking his start line. He's breaking his contacts. And lo and behold, we go back through. We look at the foundation videos. Uh, we look at your training videos. And it is, in fact, you, darling, who trained the dog when the dog was clear that they were not ready, that they did not have a headspace to be trained, that they were anticipating the thing you were going to do next and you proved them right you proved that their anticipatory behaviors will lead to the thing they were anticipating so what do you do instead everybody wants to fix it in the moment they want to go back make the dog sit again maybe maybe walk back and give the dog some cookies for sitting and then go back and i just spoiler alert that's probably not going to work for you and i don't like that either i'd love that to work for you but it doesn't and there are a lot, there are myriad reasons why it doesn't work. And honestly, you can go back to the uh, release cues episode. We'll tell you a lot about why that doesn't work. But essentially, fixing it in the moment is not what you want to do. You want to end that repetition right then and there. So if Felix raises his butt off the ground when I, when I throw a dumbbell, I leave, I exit the dumbbell. So I might take him to um, a chair and practice downstay next to a chair. That's not, a, it's not my attempt at doing a timeout. I'm reinforcing him for the downstay. We're just going to do something else. Or I got plenty of dogs to train, so you can take a break, and you're going to take a break on your station, and you know that you're going to get another turn. That, again, does not feel like a timeout to me. It is not in an effort to punish the behavior that just occurred. It is in an effort to not reinforce the behavior that just occurred. And those things are different. The opposite of reinforcement is not punishment. The opposite of reinforcement is lack of reinforcement. And so if his butt comes off the ground when I throw that dumbbell, or even I'm watching him so carefully if he flinches when I throw that dumbbell, I just reach down. I say, all done. Pat his side. All done and ask him to move with me somewhere else. We might go and take a lap outside because a lot of the time that's one of the antecedents. He's, he's maybe deprived of movement, needs to go move his body some more before he can do that well for me. So I go, okay, my bad, sweetheart. Let's go take a lap. Go take a lap outside. I might come in and try again, but I'm more likely not to. I'm more likely to say, you know, I screwed up dumbbells for today. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look at my antecedents and I'm not going to return to this. Why? Because dumbbells are so important to me. It's so important to me that he is good at that. It's so important to me that I do not produce a problem of him anticipating the retrieve. That I am not going to return to it unless I think I've properly put him in the mindset that he can now do it. I am never going to do it if I don't think he can get it right. So conversely, let's say you're at agility class and you drove an hour to get there and you worked all day and then you packed the car and then you drove an hour, maybe even more to get there. And it's your turn finally. And you go set up your dog and you go to lead out and your dog is running towards you. They took the first jump or even they stood up or they're walking towards the jump or you turn back and you see that they have walked towards the jump and they're standing at the jump now. Right. I mean, it's happened to everybody. Right. In that moment, you got to have self-control because what you're going to want to do is you're either going to want to just run because maybe you didn't even see it happening before you, you know, released. Or you're going to want to go back, take the dog by the collar. You might even correct them. You might even collar correct them or something silly like that and put them on the line 
and tell them to stay again. Just make them sit and stay again. And then you're just going to lead out and run again. And the wisest thing for you to do would be to say, can somebody else please go? And can I come back in for my turn? And that's a conversation best had ahead of time. But the best thing for you to do is to go, oh, sorry, sweetheart. Okay, we're going to leave. I'd love it if we could have our turn after another dog. But even if not after the other dog, go back, leash your dog up, leave the ring, make sure that your instructor is still running your clock, 10 minutes or whatever, leave the ring, go do your ring entry procedure again, because you should have one of those, and set up again. But don't go back and set up again and immediately lead out. Make sure that there is a break in between these reps. Make sure that you go and remove the dog from the ring, reset, get the dog in a better headspace, come back in the ring, set up, try again. And if it happens a second time, you're done, sweetie. Like, go pack it up, go home. Honestly, go home. Don't run the dog again that night. And think on your way home, what are my antecedent problems? Does my dog not get enough exercise today? Did my dog not get enough exercise this week? Has this been going on at home and I didn't realize it because it wasn't as egregious? That's often the case. And then how am I going to go and train this? Or if you don't go home, your next turn is start line stay training and it needs to be out of context. It can't be right there on the start line. Like you move to the middle of the ring, use a blank space of the ring to just practice some stays. And if you don't have enough of a start line kind of ritual to practice your stays and reinforce them, then you might want to go back to the drawing board on the training. It's about controlling ourselves to protect the future of our team rather than taking what we want right now, which is sending the dog for the dumbbell, releasing the dog to the course, momentarily fixing the dog and then releasing them to the course. Same thing with contacts. If you have stopped contacts and the dog blows through the contact and you put them back on and then you keep running in training, you're not helping yourself because you did reinforce the anticipation. You, you reinforce the incorrect behavior, plain and simple. And it's not about the dog's impulse control. It's about your training and it's about your self-control. So this was a little bit of like a luxury episode and I didn't really mean for it to be, but shows it's showing up for me big time because my dog's antecedents are not perfectly met for their training right now because I broke my foot and I am not able to exercise him appropriately and so there are certain training projects that are just off the table for me right now he's not going to see a dumbbell until i'm back on two feet and nobody hates that more than i do but that's me protecting our future career the dog knows how to fetch a dumbbell it's not like i need to train it it was polishing it that i was doing and if i were training it that would be even worse because I build all those feelings and those big expectations into the dumbbell, which I don't want to do. We also worked a little bit on his command discrimination today for the open ring, and he barked. And that is about him not having enough exercise, and so that is officially on the ta off the table now, too, for our training. So we're going to go do some scent work. He's going to do some sniffy stuff, because that's what he can do right now. That's what I can do right now. And... I can then protect the quality of the work that I have worked so hard for, and I can practice some self-control. So if I can do it, you can do it. And I would love it if you have questions about this to put them in Patreon so that I can formulate more complete, less luxury thoughts for you all if you do have those questions. Or just let me know in the Facebook comments where you have practiced self-control after hearing this. Cheers. 
Okay, and a few Patreon questions for you. The first one comes from Julie. Julie writes, what could we expect our veterinarians to offer in the way of a happy visit with dogs who don't care to be touched by others? A few vets here are wanting to take my dog from me and give him a tour and feed him cookies. My mind, heart, and gut says no way. So Julie, to me, that's not... That's not, that wouldn't be part of my training plan. And this is a situation where you can't ask them to provide a service that they don't understand. So in their mind, that is them helping you. You said happy visit. And in their mind, that's what a happy visit is. So good on them for even having a concept of what that might look like. And instead, if you want something from them, you need to tell them exactly what you want. So for me, if I do a training visit... I book an exam with a doctor and I pay the exam fee and I tell them you're not actually going to touch my dog. This is exactly what I want you to do. And I typically have an email conversation with them to make sure that that's okay before that ever happens. It's important that you are very clear about your expectations. It's not about you expecting them to provide a service of a happy visit. Expect them to provide a service they already provide and then alter it to your purposes and pay them for their time. Next one comes from Ellen who writes, what resources would you suggest for people that struggle with staying calm in situations where their dogs need them to be calm? My therapist and I are currently working through my oh so useful phobias around something terrible happening, i.e. my dog biting someone or running off and getting hit by a car, etc. And it is incredibly valuable. But is there anything to suggest for people that don't have access for a very patient therapist who lets you refer to therapy as behavior mod? So Ellen, I am happy to hear that you are working with a therapist who is working with you and has a good rapport with you. And that is my first recommendation is therapy for things like this. And truly, I can't make solid recommendations. Otherwise, there are really myriad books, podcasts, etc. Um, on kind of keeping oneself steady and calm and you do have to kind of just explore them and find what works for you and what's right for you a lot of people really swear by meditation there are a lot of things that we do for dogs that also work for people I am a huge fan of medication for anyone who might need it and the other thing that I would tell you to do is to lean on some safety measures that might make you feel safer. So if your dog needs to wear a basket muzzle in public to make you feel safe, then he needs to wear a basket muzzle in public for you to feel safe. Fine. If your dog needs to be kept on a long line because you're uncomfortable with him maybe getting hit by a car, then okay. Do I want them all off leash? Of course I do, but I don't want them off leash to your mental health detriment. So also, you know, carry spray shield, I became more religious about my spray shield when I got a small dog because I'm now a little bit more concerned about everybody's big dogs approaching, you know, things like that. So think about what would make you feel a little bit safer if you can find those things in your mind and do those. Like get a fanny pack and just put all your safety stuff in there and take it everywhere you go. You know, talk to friends, have have an accountability buddy, have somebody hang out with you. You know, there's there's so much that we can do. I would say look into ways to ease fear and anxiety in people. One of the best ones for me has been breathing and something that I just recently read, which seems funny that this has never occurred to me and probably tells you something about me. But Grisha Stewart, who is also a dog trainer, posted 
not that long ago, um, when you're nervous about something, you know, just try imagining the best case scenario. Try visualizing the best case scenario. And if you're truly being threatened by something, that's not helpful. But if you're spiraling into worst case scenarios, you might try visualizing the best case scenario. Best of luck, Ellen. Next one comes from Paul, who writes, Do you have any suggestions regarding spaces where people frequently throw food on the ground in the bushes literally everywhere? I try to let my dogs explore their surroundings, but too often they just head for the pizza crust, trampled potato chips, or In-N-Out hamburger wrapper. I do my best to take them to places where there isn't food trash, but at least where I live, it's all over the place. Drives me nuts. Okay, Paul, so first of all, you did not say anything toxic just now you said gross stuff maybe but not toxic my goal on walks is to leave my dog alone the best that i can so that means that i don't stress too hard about them eating a pizza crust here and there it also means that if i'm in an area where i think them eating stuff might be dangerous they're probably going to wear a basket muzzle to prevent them from eating that stuff there isn't a great training plan that i could outline for you in two sentences on teaching them not to eat stuff off the ground. It is something that is successfully done for service dogs, but it is a religious everyday, day in, day out, hard work process that personally I'm not up for. And I'd rather they just eat the potato chips and the pizza crust and whatever. And I also teach them a redirect cue. So people think of this as a leave it. I think of it as a redirect. So it's essentially for me a recall. And I have very good food to give them if they recalled off of something really delicious, like a hamburger wrapper from In-N-Out. I mean, it's got the sauce in it. It's got In-N-Out sauce, obviously. <laughs> it's probably got some melted cheese. So I do that. And then I also teach them a trade, which means like I have something really good for you. Spit out that thing that you have, right? So it's basically, you can't do anything about the fact that people are litter bugs and are ruining the earth, but you can do a lot about your own training and power to you. I know that it's, it's frustrating. Next one comes from Liz. Liz writes, this is regarding off-leash exercise. My dog is 16 months, intact male, German Shepherd. He's very intense with dogs, and I don't yet have a read on what types of dogs or their greeting styles that are a no-go for him. So the question is, am I affecting his physical literacy in a harmful way if I take him off-leash on primarily flat surfaces while I'm working on the pieces that will make hiking accessible to us in the future? I'd love to hike him, hike with him, and it just doesn't feel safe for me or other people's dogs or him, to be frank. Okay, Liz, so I love the question in here because people ask me questions about this specific conundrum all the time, but they don't ask me what you asked me, which is, am I affecting his physical literacy? Because I do talk all the time about I want off-leash dogs running up and down mountainsides and over rocks and through streams and jumping over logs, and I think it's really important to them and really important to their development. It is no surprise to me that you're asking this question because of who you are, and I would say that he's still going to get a lot of great physical literacy from hiking on a leash with you if you let him so like go with him off trail you know run run through the forest with him jump over the logs like let him get some good physical literacy on a leash and then also you know if you find yourself in a remote area do some scent work games on a hillside that is you know, full of vegetation and logs and whatever. So he can work on that physical literacy there. So I would find other ways to access it so that it doesn't cause you a problem. 
And next one comes from Kristen, who writes, I loved the recent Food as a Reinforcer podcast. I would love to hear your thoughts about a situation I find myself in with a certain boy dog. That is how you handle a situation in which a dog wants to do the thing badly enough that they eat the thing they don't really want because Border Collies. So I would first ask Kristen how you know that he doesn't want the food that he's eating. That's, that's my first big question. How do you know he doesn't want it if he's eating it? And then my next question is, is he still doing everything that you'd like him to do? So is he still doing his pivots or his heel work or his jumps or, you know, whatever it is that you're doing for the food? If he's eating the food and he's actually swallowing it, he's not putting it in his cheeks and he's doing the behaviors, then I don't see a problem. So you might want to elaborate on this question for me, and I would love to go deeper if you elaborate. But essentially, to me, that doesn't sound like a problem. It would be a problem if he is taking the food and then not swallowing it, in which case I would remove him from the scenario and ask him to eat again. And I would, you know, basically we are teaching them to do what you're kind of saying he does, which is to eat the thing in order to get to do stuff. But if he's putting it in his cheeks or not swallowing it, then he's not actually eating the thing and we need to pay really close attention to that if it's a problem of he stops working or he's you know not doing whatever it is that you want because he's not interested in the food then I think that's kind of a different problem and that'll be it for this week thanks everybody thanks for listening please be sure to subscribe and leave me a review if you'd like to support this podcast head over to patreon.com slash cogdogradio you might even hear me answer your question on the show. For more content like the stuff you heard here, check out my online courses at cog-dog-classroom.teachable.com.